This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Heather Cox Richardson is one of the best-known public intellectuals of the day. She's an historian of 19th century America, particularly the nation's rending and renewal before and after the Civil War. But for 21st century readers, Richardson is so much more than that. Back in 2019, she began writing daily Facebook posts about the impeachment of Donald Trump. Her calm analysis infused with historical context while carefully avoiding the hysterics found in mainstream media soon made her a go-to information source for her readers. Then Richardson moved her posts to Substack. Her newsletter, Letters from an American, now has more than 1.2 million daily readers who consider her not just an information source, but their primary news source to help them understand history's current churn. She is by far Substack's most successful writer, filling a gaping void for Americans who yearn for literate, principled, and clear-headed analysis of the day's news, as the Washington Post recently put it. Richardson's principled stance infuses her latest, highly anticipated book. It's called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. She kicked off her book tour with us at a special live conversation held at WBUR's City Space events venue. So for today's show, we're honored to bring you that conversation. I began by asking Heather Cox Richardson this question. In the future, will a future Heather Cox Richardson look back at 2024 and pinpoint that year as the year that Americans either chose to hold fast to their democracy or to let it crumble. Yes. Uh, it's interesting that you should say that, though, because historians usually don't like to look at like one point in time and say the history of a nation pivoted on that moment. Well, I'm not entirely sure we can say it pivoted there, um, as in we are building up to a, a, a moment when we have to choose. And, and many of us already have, and we are part of a, a longer set of a strand here. Um, but yes, 2024 is enormously important. But there are a lot of, a lot of things that are going to happen between now and 2024 that will help us direct where that is going to go. And what particular things are you going to be looking at? Well, um, many things, actually. There are, first of all, the black swan event, right? The, the something that might happen that we don't see coming and that's going to be huge. So if I had told you three years ago that Ukraine was going to be one of the most important countries in the global, in the global scene, you would have thought, well, you know, I, I want whatever she's drinking. Right? <laughs> and yet, when Volodymyr Zelensky said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, it changed the world. And I, who knows? Who knows what's coming next, right? So there's the black swan events, but then there are also a bunch of legal cases that are going to be really important. Not only how they are decided, but how people react to how they are decided. A judge in New York handed down a summary judgment in a piece of Letitia James's um, suit against, a lawsuit against the Trump Organization and the former president, and in that summary judgment has, um, has dissolved a number of Trump's businesses and put somebody in charge, a former judge, I think it is, in charge of, uh, of overseeing the organization. 
that's going to have huge repercussions because it's going to really hurt the, the Trump organization's ability to, to handle money, right? And handling money is crucial to that entire project. Yeah. So there's that. There's um, a number of things that are currently in process that we don't know how they will come out. And, you know, that's things like the court cases for some of them. Mm. So the one of the, of course, the powers of your letters every day is that it's not just contemporary. It's so much more than just contemporary analysis, right? You're coming at it from the deep knowledge of a historian. So I, I have been struggling over the past, well, five years now, but um, especially over the past few months to try and figure out you know, what framework, what historical framework should I be thinking through this period in the United States? So is there one that you look back on over the past couple of hundred years of American history that you find to be close in terms of us helping, helping us understand what's happening now? Yes. The, the place I always look to is the, the 1850s. Um, but to take, a, to take a bigger step, back. You know, I think one of the things that jumps out to me, the more I look at what's happening in the world, but also in the United States right now, is that there's really kind of two ways to look at the world. Either you think that everybody should be treated equally before the law and have a right to a say in their government, or you believe that some people are better than others and should rule. I mean, it's a really simple way to look at the world. And if you're looking for a pattern in the United States, uh, the 1850s were very much like the present. So, you know, people say to me, well, you know, how can we ever come out of this? And I'm like, you know, if you had told somebody uh, in 1853 what the world was going to look like just 10 years later, they would never have believed it. Because in 1853, it really looked as if the elite enslavers had taken over the federal government and were going to make enslavement national. They were, in fact, going to become a world power that was because they were the ones who controlled the most of the money. They were going to become a world power that spread their system around the world. And the entire enterprise of American democracy would have died. 1854, they push a little bit too hard. People like Abraham Lincoln wake up after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and say, wait a minute, we may not like each other, we may not agree about a lot of stuff, but we know we've got to save democracy. By 1856, they have a new political party. By 1858, somebody like Abraham Lincoln is beginning to articulate a vision for that party that is based in the fundamental documents of the, the, of the United States, especially the Declaration of Independence. By 1859, he has articulated a new vision of the government. By 1860s in the White House, and by 1863, he has delivered the Gettysburg Address, dedicating the nation to a new birth of freedom based on the Emancipation Proclamation, which was unthinkable 10 years before. So when I look at the present, I look at, you know, people say it's, you know, they're so terrified now. And I'm like, you know, I'm a happy little duck over here because <laughs> 10 years ago, when we were talking about things like the, the rise of the unitary executive or signing statements or any of the many things that were happening, people weren't paying any attention and you couldn't get people to pay attention. And now people are not only paying attention, they're in the streets and they're pushing back against gerrymandering and they're doing all the things that I wish we'd been doing for the past 40 years. Mm. So that parallel is the one that really jumps out to me. People waking up and saying, we want to save democracy. In 1853 though, lurking in the background, was there the catalyzing threat of secession or war? Absolutely. So Absolutely. that was there. I mean, the, the rending of the nation was lurking. Yes. 
do we necessarily have that now? So, so that's the question people ask, are we going toward a civil war? And there, I think there are two ways to look at that. The first is this, this sort of war we had in 1860, no. For, the, for, a, for a simple reason, and that's that in 1860, South Carolina was the only state in the union that chose its electors through the legislature, which meant that the legislature was sitting when Lincoln was elected. They instantly went from being a state legislature to being a secession convention. This is in late November of 1860. What is that? That's not planting season in the South. That's when everybody puts on their fancy gowns and goes to Christmas parties and drinks a lot and boasts and tries to impress the ladies. So the South secedes really quickly before Lincoln is even inaugurated. And then nothing happens. So one of the reasons that the the Confederacy fires on Fort Sumter in April is because planting season is starting and they're afraid the whole thing's going to collapse. And the reason that I'm telling that is because the secession of the South in 1860 to 1861 is really fast. And I think that former President Trump's administration, especially Steve Miller and Steve Bannon, tried to do that in January of 2017 with the travel ban, but it didn't work. And their moment was January 6, 2021. And when that moment passed, and now that we have the Department of Justice having charged more than 1,000 people and convicted, I forget how many hundreds at this point, that moment of we're going to do this because we, you know, this is our moment to win, that moment passed. And I think that really matters that everything has slowed down there. Now, that being said, people say, you know, could it really be that we ever get into a shooting war? And my answer to that is we're in one. I mean, the number of people in America who are dying every day to gun violence, not only politically motivated or racially motivated, but also domestic violence, which makes up more than half of our mass shootings. Most people don't realize that statistic. That's what historians are going to look at. Mm. And that, that I think, really matters. Um, so no, I don't think we're going to be lined up in the streets, but I think that aspect of our current society matters. It's interesting to hear you say that the moment that the insurrection of January 6th offered has passed. I'm about to disagree with you. Um, I disagree with you. <laughs> for a couple of reasons. I think one is that it proved to people who are aligned with Trump and inclined to actually try to seek violent change that they can do it. Yes, there, ha- there are many, many people who are, who are on trial. But in terms of broader ramifications beyond those individuals, I don't think the nation has actually seen that. And second of all, in our, on on point, in our study of uh, transitions from democracy to authoritarianism, a pattern has come up that the first attempt is the dress rehearsal for the second or third attempt to break down a democracy, which ultimately succeeds in nations that become authoritarian. Well, it certainly could be, and there are a lot of scholars who say that that that's the case. I am, quite frankly, less worried about that than I am about the takeover of what I would call the nodes of democracy mm-hmm. in especially the states, gerrymandering and the, and the electoral boards. Now, again, you look at where we are now, we have 14 months before the next election. How that's going to play out, I think, is unclear. We have a decision today from the Supreme Court throwing Alabama back its its maps and saying, no, you really do have to redraw the maps. Um, there's a lot of there's still a lot of places in play. Mm. I mean, I don't think I'm not saying that we're done, that everything is going to be good, but I'm also not saying everything's going to be bad. I'm saying we have to choose. More from our special conversation with Heather Cox Richardson when we come back. 
This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And now more of our special conversation with historian Heather Cox Richardson, recorded before a live audience this week at WBUR's City Space. Our entire conversation was infused with Richardson's sharp historical analysis. But I also wanted to take a few minutes to hear Richardson's story of herself. So I asked her whether the name of her wildly popular newsletter, Letters from an American, was inspired by another great observer of American democracy, Alexis de Tocqueville, and the letters he wrote as he traveled across the country in the 1830s. It comes from Crevecourt. Oh, okay. Letters from an American Farmer, which is that document from, I'm going to go with 1787, but I'm, I could easily be making that up at this point. Um, now I wonder. Somebody should check that. Um, <laughs> in which people are wondering what on earth a democracy is. They're playing with these ideas, but what does that mean? What does it even look like? So he writes this book called Letters from an American Farmer that literally says, what is this American, this new man? And then it was also named for Alistair Cook's Letters from America. Yeah. Because what he did in those fabulous letters was once a week, he would do a snapshot of the country at that moment. And it could be anything from a tattoo artist to what, you know, Truman was doing. And I thought that what I was trying to do was a snapshot for that day for a historian in 150 years. And I will tell you that my cutoff is midnight Eastern time. And nothing makes me more unhappy than when news drops at 11.59. When, when, do you remember when Trump got COVID? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, cause they didn't announce it until, until about 11.58, figuring everybody was asleep. And I'm like, dude, that was so not fair. Um, but, but then sometimes something happens just after midnight that affects what I've already written. And it kills me. But I'm like, no, I didn't know that at midnight. So I can't look at it until tomorrow. So that's... You're a really tough critic on yourself because I don't, I've never read any of your letters as being um, moot or, or, or not relevant to the moment that I, then I read it. Well, I just... It, so, so there are a number of people in, in history who, who have kept records. And 
they're really important historical documents. So you, you want to be sure that when you're putting something down for a day, it really happened that day. And so I try not to bleed over on either side. And sometimes it just kills me um, because something happened just a couple weeks ago and a, a story broke about three. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't. I gotta, I gotta leave it the way it was. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I actually, we're gonna come back to Letters from an American in a second. I actually wanna take a meandering trip around a little bit and ask you about you. What kind of kid were you when you were, when you were say like 10 and below? Oh, so this is so bad because there are actually people in this audience who know the answer to that. <laughs> So I was brilliant. I did everything my parents told me to. <laughs> I never got in trouble. <laughs> Went to bed on time. Uh, so what was I as a kid? I, I, from the time I was little, I wanted to teach and write. I was a total bookworm. Loved being outside. Loved reading books. Hated clothes. Hated school. I mean, buying clothes and, and all that. Um, <laughs> uh, hated school more than anything on earth. Still hate school. Because my, my thing is, don't waste my time. Like, if I'm going to be in this room, teach me something. Are and you? I think that shows in my writing. It's like, I'm not going to give you a sentence unless it's worth reading. Yeah. So do you recall a moment or an early moment in your life where you felt how history, say the history you had been reading on your own, coursed through your life, that you actually understood the connection between the nation or even your locale's history and its impact on you as a young person? There was never a time when it didn't. I mean, we grew up with storytellers on, in rural Maine, and you could not make sense of the world without understanding the stories that people told about the world. And from the very beginning, it was clear that people did not tell the same stories about the same events to me. And that was that was a real introduction to the to the the intersection of what i love to do the the intersection of myth and reality image and reality and one of the things that i learned early on both growing up on the coast of maine but then i was a waitress in oklahoma and i was the only person on the floor who was not an evangelical christian hmm. and they were all they all hated democrats more than anything on earth and believed, literally one of them called me the Antichrist because I'd gone to Harvard. And, um, and they were cheering on Ronald Reagan even as he was cutting everything they needed to survive. Because we were living on waitresses minimum, which is $2.01 an hour at the time. And I remember cooking one Sunday, and in the, in, they let us use the restaurant when it was closed, to have food for this family when they were bringing a baby home from the hospital. And they're all in there talking about how important it is for everyone to make it on their own. And I'm like, they literally have no food in the house for this family. And you're cheering that on. And I thought, I got to understand the importance of ideas because they are centering their lives around a set of ideas that do not reflect reality. So I would say those two things, mostly. And are those the, the things that led you to your study of history or to fall in love with it? No, what led me to history was to say I hated, I hated school. Okay. Always hated school. <laughs> and I took a course on the Civil War, and I had to write a, a final paper. And I went down to the basement of GovDocs at Harvard, which at the time was underground and cold, and nobody was ever there except the phenomenal librarians and John Updike and me. Like, there's nobody over there because it's government documents, right? 
And so I went down there before I got to know those people. And then, um, I, I never got to know John Updike. I just knew who he was. And then, um, I started reading the Chicago Tribune. I was like, I got to come up with a paper topic. So I went down, I don't eat breakfast. So I went down about 10 o'clock and started reading the Chicago Tribune for the Civil War. And I read through the entire Chicago Tribune, which is only four pages and two of them are advertising, so it's not as big a deal as it sounds. But I read through them, and it was one of those machines that you crank and you put your head in. And so I read, and I was so into it, I read through lunch. So I hadn't eaten all day. And you know, I'm day by day, I went through the entire Civil War. And I got to the end, it's probably, GovDocs closed at like 11, so it's probably 9.30 or 10. And I, I turned the crank and Lee surrendered. And of course, I, I knew I knew the story, but believe me, no food, cold, dark, because it's all dark in there. And I'm living it and Lee surrendered. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> Lee surrendered. And then I turned the crank and the Chicago Tribune was bordered in black oh. and they had shot Lincoln. And I was just like, oh my God, they shot my president. And I, I finished the, the war, I read through some more, but I, I realized it had come alive to me in a way that nothing ever had before. And I went home and I wrote a letter to my mother and I said, cause she was always into history. And I said, you're just not gonna believe what happened today. And when she died, I found she had kept that letter. So that was, that was it. So letters, 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 letters. Can you tell us the story of, you know, where were you, what were you doing, what were you thinking when you decided, hey, this thing called Substack, which at that point, like, no, I had never heard of, hardly anyone had ever heard of, I want to use that to write every day to whomever would be I willing to, love to, to read it. how organized you make me sound. So what happened was I got stung by a bee and... <laughs> And, and I'm sorry, a yellow jacket. I didn't. Have, my my poor brother-in-law is here, and he was. I was painting, and I asked him to come over because I was on a ladder. I won't be on a ladder without someone there. And I got stung by a yellow jacket. And he said to me, "Oh my God! Oh my God, Heather! I was I was moving house." He said, "I'm gonna. I'll get your EpiPen." And I looked at him. I said, "Oh, Chris, you're not gonna want to hear this." He goes, "Oh my God! You left your EpiPen at the other house. I'll go get it." And I said, "Oh, you're really not gonna want to hear this." And he goes, "You don't." have an EpiPen, do you? And I was like, I never got a fill this year. And he goes, if you don't die, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, so I had to sit and figure out like if I should go back to Boston um, and see what was going to happen with the stings. So, um, so I wrote a letter on, on Facebook. I had about 22,000 followers at the time explaining where I thought the country was in that moment. And then all of a sudden, I was swamped with questions and, and all of a sudden my numbers started incredibly going up and I thought, I guess I should answer some more questions. That was September 15th, 2019. I wrote again on September 17th, 2019 and I've written every night since. And by after three weeks, I think my followers were several hundred thousand and climbing like that every day. And then my people started asking for a, a newsletter and I literally said, literally said to my, gra my graduate students, what the expletive is a new <laughs> because that reminded me of PTO, you know, when I was when I was seven. And they looked into it and discovered that my numbers were already too high for any MailChimp or anything else to handle. It was it was we were in the hundreds of thousands. And right then Substack was starting and they called me and they said, We are watching what's happening on your Facebook page. We think you're a good fit. And I will tell you, I were, I was on Substack for almost two years before I started 
before I accepted money because I never wanted to have yeah. to accept money for this. And they never once said to me that I was using their resources and they they wanted something from me. Amazing. But but they are literally technologically they are the only people who can handle more than it's, I send out well over a million emails a night. That's a lot of emails to send. They do send them in a number of batches, but they're the only people right now who can handle that. Okay, so we're still doing our meandering walk through your through your life here. And <laughs> <laughs> to that point, actually, well, now that question has disappeared, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Someone from the audience wanted to know that they'd heard you were a Republican. Um, <laughs> is that true? And if so, when and how did you shift? So I love this. Um, my answer to that is, is, and I am not being flippant, is that I am a historian. So, so today's modern politics doesn't mean, a, I won't say it doesn't mean a lot to me. That's, it doesn't mean a lot to me personally, because my frame is just so much longer term than the present. Um, so I don't identify with a political party in this in this moment. But I love the fact that I am accused of being both a shill for the Republicans and a shill for the Democrats, which says to me I'm probably doing something right. <laughs> so about the process that you undergo every single night, um, I mean, how do you do it? Can you describe a little bit about how you decide sort of what you're going to focus on in the letter, how you think through that, that thread that you pull through all the way from what had happened on that day to, you know, I don't know, a century or two centuries ago. Where do you write? Do you have a beautiful, well, I guess, nighttime view of the main coastline? I mean, just tell me about that. So just so you know, all my friends who are here and, and my, my one of my children who's here are killing themselves laughing right now <laughs> because literally I'm like, you know, in the car, like, you know, <laughs> in a storage room at the, you know, the, at a coffee shop. No, so what I do is every morning I wake up and I reach my phone and I read uh, a number of places to see what the stories are in the morning, you know, what has happened overnight, uh, what, what people think is important. And people send me tips. They are not, I don't have a staff or anything, but a lot of people know a lot of stuff and they send me information. Then I go about my day and do meetings and all the things that have to be done. And I continually check into the news. And usually there's a pretty clear story. So for example, it was, I'm, I'm really proud of this actually, that um, I had a really strong sense that the um, the administration was about to do something really big on the antitrust front. Mm -hmm. And so I actually started writing last night's letter, uh, today's letter last night, because I knew that today, because I know history, was the anniversary of the establishment of the FTC. The, um, and and even if it wasn't a big deal for the today's FTC, which I thought it might be because Biden gave a number of really big speeches uh, starting in July of 2021 about antitrust. And we've got Lena Khan at, at the FTC. So that you sort of felt like there was something gonna, that was going to happen there. I thought it was going to be a cool letter. It was going to be a historical letter. And that's why I wanted to write about Louis Brandeis, which would have been a very nice letter. Thank you very much. Um, but then, then it was clear the, the lawsuit against Amazon, that, that was the, that's a big story. And then, you know, um, Biden standing in a picket line. I know that's never happened before. That's a big story. But so normally what I do is see what's out there. And really, they're usually only one or two stories. 
And then you sit there and you say, if I were teaching a class about this, why would I say that they are important? And then, um, and often I can't do that. Those are the really hard nights when there's a lot of information and it's really scattered. And then literally I sit there and say, if it were 150 years from now, what would I want to know? Yeah. And that is, that's literally how I make the choice of how to, to what to put yeah. where. But you know what I think is interesting is when you do that, there are themes and I don't design those themes. But when I looked back over for something else, I had to read the letters for a, for a period of time. And I'm like, darn it, that guy keeps coming back. Chris Krebs, you know, the guy who does the, the uh, uh, election security. Yep. You know, when the first time he appeared, did you think he was going to be a recurring character? <laughs> you know, Cassidy Hutchinson? Yeah. Uh, by the Chad way, I'm just going to shamelessly plug On Point because we did a five-part series on Monopoly's in America um, last year. Time has likely lost mo most of its meaning to me, but I think it's last year. Um, for the same reasons that, uh, that you just described, that there are, there are things that keep coming back. And so um, looking at Monopoly today, and we, a lot of that series actually also was like, okay, the last great antitrust, you know, the trust-busting era of the United States, what lines can we draw? So listen to it. Um, okay, so here's another question from the audience. How do we maintain relationships with loved ones on the, quote, wrong side? Um, well, you know, I don't have any great degrees or ideas about psychology. I would say that one of the things that really jumps out to me is how many people actually agree about many things and are artificially divided. So, you know, your loved ones are your loved ones. Focus on gardening or whatever you can share. Um, you know, one of the things that I said to somebody once about this is it's rather, when I, when I talk to people who are unable to leave their political prejudices behind, um, in, even in personal relationships, it's somewhat like having a, a, a friend who's in an abusive relationship and you can see it and they cannot. And the worst thing you can possibly do is to say, I really don't like her. She's, she's abusive. Uh, you, what you really want to do is maintain that relationship and model a healthy relationship. And that's sort of what I do when I look at politics is not say your guy sucks, but literally say, I don't think it's okay when the police throw somebody in the back of a van and break their backs, mm -hmm. you know, which is much more common ground, I think. When we come back, the final portion of our conversation with Heather Cox Richardson, including how she affirms her love of country. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case and a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. 
be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And now the final part of our special conversation with historian and hugely popular newsletter writer Heather Cox Richardson. More than a million people read her newsletter, Letters from an American, every single day. Now, the New York Times has 10 million subscribers, so Richardson's reader numbers might not seem that large. But the Times has more than 1,700 journalists. Richardson is just one woman and her readership continues to grow. So clearly, she's filling a gap in the kind of journalism people need and want. So we talked about why that gap persists, especially at a time where the preservation of American democracy relies more than ever on access to factual information and lucid analysis. Dan Frumkin, who's a media critic, he recently had a a post where he had asked journalists that he respects, like how should the 2024 election be covered? And on the list it said, well, don't cover the horse race, provide readers with context, examine the implications of policy suggestions or ideas, not just sort of who's offering the policy suggestion, incorporate history uh, into the stories. That wasn't me. (laughs) Um, focus on the how and the why, not the who. And I mean, this, the list went on. And as I was looking at it, I just thought, well, that is exactly what you do. Right. I don't think you were thinking of that consciously. Like, here are the ways that I need to put all this information and my historical knowledge together. And I'm very taken by the fact that you asked yourself, what would I want to read 150 years from now? Why do you think someone like you is doing that work rather than the, the majority of the media is not. One of the things that really jumps out to me, and we have very good journalists in this country, a number of very good journalists in this country, and it's a very hard job. What I do is really not a hard job because the news is there for me. I need to make sense of it, but I don't have to find it. Um, sometimes I find it, but Americans never shut up. So if you want to, <laughs> literally, literally you can Google you know, something you really want to know. And and there's 15 people talking about it uh, in one magazine or another. Um, You know, the Defense Department is great about just chatting about stuff. But I do think there is an issue with the depth of training. So if you think of the great old journalists, Murrow, for example, or Cronkite, you know, their knowledge of other countries of their knowledge was just so freaking deep that when they're all, they were live on camera and you know somebody would get assassinated they would say well we have seen this coming since 47 years ago when you know they tripped coming out of the elevator and and knocked that guy into the dessert tray and you're like really you know <laughs> and we just don't have that now simply because people don't have that extraordinarily broad education and also the the time to spend doing nothing but learning about, you know, about the different pieces of the world. Hmm. Maybe. Well, one of the great joys and challenges in talking with you is we could go in so many different directions, but I will try to stay on topic here. So let me turn back to an audience question. Is it valuable to soften some of my beliefs to move forward incrementally 
Or can we keep fighting for radical change when the pendulum swings so harshly? I don't think it's fair that you can see the questions and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that's the, the, the question, right? Like, ju- you know, the, the whole thing is politics a bus. So you just take the bus that's going closest to where you want it to go, or do you have to push for change? And I'm going to be a total Libra here and say they're both important because the reality is politics is never what you want it to be. It is literally a question of getting somebody in in power, not just in office, but in power, who will move that bus in the right direction. But we need the radicals everywhere to put pressure on those people driving the bus. We need both of those people. And a great example of that, of course, is women's suffrage. You know, one of the ways that people like Julia Ward-Howe or Lucy Stone could get attention for their desire for the, the, the vote was by saying, if you don't give it to us here, you're going to have to deal with those people out there chaining themselves to the fence. And and I'm mixing a lot of eras here, but, but you know, Woodrow Wilson is like, okie dokie. You know, I'm not dealing with the guys out there, those people out there chaining themselves to the fence. I'm happy to deal with you nice ladies with your pearls. And that was a one-two punch that I think is, is really true for, for many of our successes in terms of social movements. Well, getting back to your concern about politics at the state level, gerrymandering, et cetera. Is that one-two punch even effective anymore in America now if politicians literally do not have to answer at all to half the electorate? You can extrapolate what I just said to the idea, for example, the civil rights movement, but you could also say the same thing with any kind of political rights. You need to have the people fighting piece by piece in the courts for sure But you also need to have people putting vocal pressure on the courts, on politicians to make those changes. So, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me right now is the fact that there was a lot of chatter, which I did not repeat because of where the chatter was, that Alabama was deliberately not pushing forward its required redistricting maps because they expected that Brent Kavanaugh was going to to go ahead and switch his vote and let them get away with the maps that they that they wanted to get away with without the second black majority district. They did the opposite. Why? Why does the Supreme Court today seem to be moderating some of its more extreme impulses? That's a story that is not done yet. You know, just the the same way that the New Deal courts backed off from their extremism when it looked as if they were going to get packed. I mean, so maybe they do have a slight sense of shame because confidence in the Supreme Court is cratering. Yes, maybe. I mean, John Roberts really cares about the legacy of the court. And maybe they don't. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But there is a movement there, and I do not think it is unreasonable to say that the fury over let's call it Justice Thomas, is making perhaps some of the younger justices think, maybe we better back off a little bit on some of our stances. That and Dobbs. Maybe we shouldn't accept flights and vacations from people who are going to have their lawyers in front of the court. Maybe or maybe, you know, he liked his oatmeal that day. And so, I mean, we don't know. This is the point of being a historian, right? I'd love to give you all the answers. We don't know what that's going to look like. But it is not unreasonable to think that popular disgust with the current Supreme Court has made it move a little bit away from its extremes. Mm. So I've been turning a question over and over in my head, and I don't know how to phrase it. Um, 
How would you describe how your love for country manifests itself in what you do every day? So my love for this country is based in my belief in the concept of human self-determination as a fundamental goal for humanity. That is, uh, that's really what drives me, the idea that people should have the, the right and the ability to make their own decisions about their own lives. It manifests itself in the United States because I believe that democracy has the potential to be a government that gives the most people that right. And believing that then makes me really interested in the individuals who have advanced that goal and usually who have advanced that goal somewhat inadvertently and who, again, to speak as a, as a humanist more than as a historian, who have advanced that goal despite their own flaws. Because at the end of the day, that's the story of humanity. So I, I care deeply about American history. I care deeply about how we got to where we are. But I think fundamentally it's a question of caring deeply about humans. And that caring for humans and caring for each other is, I think, the bridge that makes this, what I am now believing is a movement, address the problems that we have in today's United States society, but that also offers uh, a way forward that is much more just than we have had in our past. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that because as I was walking to work this morning, I was thinking about, I'm 47, so most of my life has been spent under the aegis of the revolution brought in by Ronald Reagan, right? And so when Reagan said, government's the problem, right? Or Margaret Thatcher saying, there's no such thing as society. I grew up in a world where the news wouldn't talk about American citizens' confidence as X. We'd talk about consumer confidence, right? So kind of growing up in a stew where you define yourself as an American, whether consciously or unconsciously, probably more unconsciously, not as a human who's supposed to care for your fellow human, your fellow American, but as a, as a consumer whose self-satisfaction is your primary reason for loving this country. And uh, I think we're pulling ourselves out of that. Do you think that that is gaining enough momentum that we can start proudly proclaim love of country no matter where you are in the political spectrum? I do. The, the idea that we have ceded patriotism to a group of radical extremists because today's Republicans are not within the American mainstream. They are not, is appalling to me. I mean, to be a, an American patriot means believing in a country that defends equality before the law which is something noble. And to, to recognize that that's what this country has always been at its best. And in that, I'm not seeing anything that we haven't done before. Quite literally, you know, this is where the populist movement came from. And, and like uh, this current moment, the populist movement came from a, a place where the, the people in, in Washington simply had no idea it was happening. 
Um, there's this wonderful moment when in the election of 1890, when the Alliance movement is rising in the American West and the American South, there's a bunch of letters that are going back to the president and to politicians back in Washington going, hey, guys, we've got a problem. Got a problem back here. Ooh, we got a problem. We're not even running a candidate because we're not going to win. And the Republicans who expected to clean up in that election were like, yeah, whatever, you, who cares? And in the election of 1890, when the Republicans thought they were going to win in spades, the Democrats and the Alliance movement took the House of Representatives by a margin of two to one and took control of the Senate. And there's this wonderful letter that this lady writes about visiting Benjamin Harrison, the president. And she says, he just wandered around the, the yard going, I'm sorry, the garden going, I don't know what happened. I don't understand what happened. I don't get what happened. All I know is it wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that, that all happened under the radar screen. New newspapers, new, new meetings, new political movements, all these things. And, and literally most of those newspapers don't even survive. We know that they existed, but South Dakota, which started that movement, all started all the new newspapers. There are none of those newspapers extant now. Yeah. You know, um, several years ago, I sat down and read the declaration with my daughter. I still think it's one of the most magnificent documents ever written. And I was like really getting excited again, reading it because the idea, speaking of humanism, right? The idea that's captured in it is worth saving, right? It's worth fighting for. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm wildly patriotic, to be perfectly honest. It, that came to me through my parents who chose this country. Um, and so it's, it is quite um, inspiring to hear you say that despite all the uh, very significant challenges to our democracy that are, we're currently being faced with, that it's worth fighting for. Um, because, but people want to know, like, how do you maintain your optimism about that? How do you maintain your positivity? How do you maintain the willingness to hold fast? Um, because I know we've done it before. And, and one of the things that, and, and because people are nice. I mean, people are, you either believe people are good or you believe, believe they're not. And I believe people are good. Not all of them. But most people are good, and, and we haven't been vocal enough about that for a long time, and people are starting to do that again. And again, we, we, we have been in situations like this before, but one of the things that I really like people to understand is that I think there has been a, a, a sense that societies are saved by that one brilliant person. You know, and, and one of the ways we've taught civil rights history worries me a bit because it's always like, you know, these great people who arose and did these great things. And the truth is that people become heroes because they do the right thing one day after another. And one of my favorite stories is about four women who became known as the, the angels of the underground in the Philippine movement in World War II, um, the, the, so the movement to save the Philippines in World War II. And you're like, wow, four ladies, they saved the underground in the Philippines, right? This is a really big deal. Literally, one of them becomes the hero of the Philippines because when she goes to get enrolled by the Japanese, not knowing that they're going to be um, taking everybody away, they say, we're going to just write your names down, you can go home. She goes to have her name written down. And she has a panic attack, so she can't stay in the, in the room. And everybody's like, oh, just stay for 10 more minutes, and then you can go home. And she's like, I can't. I'm having a panic attack. She goes home. Of course, everybody else gets rounded up, and there she is 
in her apartment all alone. She's got nothing to do. So she peeks out the window and watches what the Japanese soldiers are doing for weeks. So she knows all their movements. And it's like, she did not wake up and say, I am going to be the hero of the Philippines. She woke up and said, God, I'm having a panic attack. I can't, I can't do this very simple thing I need to do. And so she went home and circumstances put her in a place to become one of the angels of the underground. And that's kind of, I think, the story of life. You know, nobody wakes up and says, I am going to save humanity today. They wake up and say, I'm going to put food on the table. And on the way, you know, maybe I'm going to, you know, save a child from a speeding train or whatever, but I'm just going to do the right thing again and again and again. And if enough of us do the right thing again and again and again, we come out with a really good outcome. Thank you. That's Heather Cox Richardson. She's a professor of history at Boston College, author of the newsletter Letters from an American. And her newest book, out just this week, is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. We spoke before a live audience at WBUR's City Space Events venue. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. On Point. 